If you have your Bibles with you today, please turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 34. Psalm 34. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the little Bibles in the pockets or the the seats in front of you, underneath the chairs. They have those, so you're welcome to do that as well. Um, Psalm 34. Over the last few weeks, we've been going through this series called Taboo. I don't know uh, if you've maybe been with us or if you're new with us, but we're talking about the things that we don't normally talk about. Taboo series is talking about things we don't talk about. And there's a lot of stuff in the world that we talk about that the church seems to kind of turn a blind eye to for whatever reason. Sometimes we uh, are embarrassed to talk about it. Sometimes we want to pretend that it's not there. Uh, Sometimes it's just uncomfortable for us to talk about it. And when we try, we end up doing more harm than we do help. Um, But that's what we've been doing over the last number of weeks. Um, A number of weeks ago, we kicked it off and I talked about dealing with depression. And I talked about the reality of depression and how we can respond to depression from a biblical perspective and what God shows about dealing with the three parts of us, the mind, the body, and the soul, and how those things actually come together. Pastor Rob talked about heaven and hell and the realities of heaven and hell and how knowing those truths should impact the way that we live as followers of Christ. So important. He did a great job with that. Um, Over the last two weeks, especially two weeks ago, Joel Jakubowski came and he spoke about addiction. And if you were here talking uh, or you heard him speak two weeks ago, um, you were probably, I hope you were blessed. How many were you here two weeks ago when Joel talked about addiction? Wasn't that a good message that he talked about, bringing in awareness? Not only was it truthful, but that dude's hysterical. He is so funny and it's just good. And the fact that he is a guy who has come from a place of addiction and how he can speak about that. We talked about that. He was here last Thursday night again, giving more detailed training on addiction awareness. And we have already been talking, Joel and I, about bringing him back again to do another detailed evening training to talk about practical steps you can take if you are struggling with addiction, if you have family members or friends, and how you can give practical steps to help people come out of addiction. Uh, Jesse Comrie came last week as well, talked about addiction from his history a little, but also shared about new life that comes in Christ, a little bit of a break from our series, and now we're back to it today. Um, so I'm excited to talk with you about this, but I have to tell you, I'm, I'm also tentative to talk about it because the things we need to talk about in the church can be difficult to talk about. Uh, today, we're talking about being disappointed with God. Being disappointed with God. Now, I think this is something that we don't like to talk about because if if you're let's let's say for you if you're a Christian if you've put your faith in Christ uh, at some point in your life and and someone says hey you know have you ever been disappointed with God or or maybe right now you're going through a circumstance in your life where you actually are disappointed with God um, it doesn't sound exciting to talk about. In fact, it can feel a little embarrassing because maybe nobody else feels like that. Certainly some of the people who are in the church, certain people you can think of, maybe they never feel that way. Maybe they, they always, you know, maybe are more spiritual. Um, we risk being judged by others, maybe who haven't felt this way. If you've ever been disappointed with God, maybe something is wrong with you or you think, what's wrong with me that I feel like maybe God's abandoned me or he doesn't love me or, or surely, you know, if God was really a good God that these things wouldn't happen. Maybe you've thought about some of those things in your life and it, and it is kind of embarrassing to talk about with other people because it makes you seem like you're unspiritual and maybe it's something that they can't identify with. Um, so we sometimes ignore it. And we just don't talk about it because it's better to just not talk about those things. Well, this morning we're going to talk about what it means to be disappointed with God. And if you've ever been disappointed with God, maybe today you are disappointed with God about something. Hopefully this will give you something to go with and something to think about. 
What does it look like to be disappointed with God? Well, there's lots of examples, and I won't touch on all of them, but I do have a few that I think will hit a lot of us where we live, maybe some of us, um, in more than one area. Um, Maybe you've been waiting for a new job or a new career, or you've been struggling to find your way, and you've been asking and praying and seeking, but nothing's been changing. Maybe you're that person that's been waiting as a young couple who's been waiting to get pregnant and, they're, and you're waiting and just petitioning and, and, and it's getting harder because your friends that you went to school with month after month go by and you hear the next news of the next person that gets pregnant or the, the next year they have more children and, and you've been waiting and you've been, your heart's just been saying, God, what about me? What about me? And you can grow weary. Maybe you've been praying and believing for a healing in yourself or someone else's that never seems to come. I wonder how many of us would say that we've actually been praying for something that never seems to ever come. And maybe for the full extreme to that, maybe you were praying for someone to get healed that actually ended up dying. Would that make us be disappointed with God? I think it can. Maybe you've given yourself financially to help others consistently in generosity and yet You know that giving is a biblical thing and God wants you to have a generous heart, but you always seem to continue to struggle to make ends meet on a weekly or a monthly basis. Or maybe you're someone who invests themselves in others selflessly. You just want to invest yourself and you pour into someone who really needs your help and it doesn't ever seem to make a difference in their life. And in fact, sometimes you pour in so much that that maybe they get so frustrated with the fact that you keep wanting them to change that they separate from you and walk away and they want nothing to do with you. That happens Especially in the church, that happens. Maybe you've been waiting patiently as that single person for the the special someone that God's going to put into your life and you're going to be able to no longer sit in the seats and give witness to those people that sit at the altar and say, I do, but that your time will come where you can walk down the aisle and you can say your vows to the person you want to spend the the rest of your life for. And you've been waiting and waiting Or you're hoping for restoration in a marriage that ultimately ends in divorce. Or you're just praying for something that you've been asking God for patiently and it never seems to happen. These are examples. All of them are examples that I think we can relate to in different ways that if we're not careful could result in us becoming disappointed with God. And um, as I talked before when we talked about depression and some of the other topics, this is not something I'm speaking to you. I'm with you on this. To say that I haven't been disappointed with God would be an untruth. It would be a flat-out lie. I would say as as recent as yesterday, um, God reminds me that there are many, many times that I just struggle sometimes with wanting to be disappointed with him. And he continues to bring me back to Scripture and say, here's how you respond to this. So so I want to talk about this a little bit this morning briefly, and I want to ask what our response should be in this. Okay, But before I talk about that, I want to talk about the one thing all of these things have in common. Because all of those examples I gave you, or maybe it's an example that you have that's different from that, they all share this one thing in common, and that's this. The expectation that you have doesn't equate or equal the reality of where you are. You're expecting something... And the reality is something different. You with me? Does it make sense? That's, and I say usually when expectation doesn't equal reality, there's frustration in there sometimes. You know, I need my child to behave this way, and then they're over here freaking out. No, no, that, then I get frustrated with that. But with God, it's really no different. We do the certain things. We have a certain belief. We open up this word, and we read things in Scripture. And, and the outcome is not what we expect it to be sometimes. And we get disappointed with God. And our response 
can be one of two things. It makes us run away from him or it makes us run to him. And people only do one or the other. You can't do both and you can't do something different. You either run away from God and I've seen that for many years. I've been one of those people at different times in my life where I'm like, I hear you, I know you're there and I love you, but I'm not talking to you right now. Goodbye, see you later. And God just waits. But then there are other people that they walk they walk from church. They walk from God. They walk from family. They want nothing to do with any of these things. Because if God really was good, he wouldn't have allowed this, 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 this. And they have a laundry list of hurts that they've chalked up in their life that they become offended towards God. And they're so disappointed they can't even want to, they don't even want to be in a relationship with anyone who even talks about God. So maybe you're one of those people that have run at different times. Maybe you're one of the people that runs closer to God. I know that the answer is God wants us to run closer, but it can feel like a huge leap for us to even talk about running closer to God if we're going through the pain right now. So my hope this morning in sharing this with you today is to give you a little insight maybe as to how we can no longer be disappointed with God and what Scripture actually talks about to give us a little insight into how to do this because Scripture is very clear how we can do this. See, when we're young... Let me back up. It all comes down to our expectation. When our expectation is for something to happen and the reality is it doesn't happen, we throw a temper tantrum. Now, as a young child, we understand that, right? How many of you, you know, if you're being honest, have ever had a child that had a temper tantrum for something that they couldn't have, right? You said that they couldn't have it, they wanted it, and they just went nutso on you. You know, anyone ever have that? Like in a supermarket, especially ever have that, you know, supermarket people don't be pointing at people. I see people pointing, don't point, you know, so watch out. But I've been in supermarkets before. where, like, you know, I feel for the parents, man, because the kid's like, I want that. And then you go and you look at them and they say, no, you can't have it. And they freak out, man, on the floor and they just run around and, and yell and scream and spin around on the floor. That just happened a couple weeks ago when I was walking to a store and the kid was in the cart. You know, I like these carts where you can like book, buckle them in with like five point harnesses because you can't get the kid out. But you know what you can't do? You can't stop them from yelling because the point, the five point harness doesn't have a mask. It just has the the safety belt, right? So they're in the cart and the parents pushing them. I felt so bad for this lady. I think it was in Walmart and she was walking around with this kid and the kid's going, and I walked by and she was just like a zombie. Seriously. Seriously. And she just, she walked by and I looked at her and I looked, you know, and there's a lot, you can have two responses to this, right? You can be the the adult who doesn't ever make a a problem or ever make a bad decision and walk by and go, oh, that parent needs to get their child in line. You know, I didn't do that. Okay. I walked by and I looked at her and I just smiled. I said, I've been there. You're doing okay. And she was just like, (laughs) seriously, like I'm not embellishing. She just looked at me and went, oh, like a eye roll. And the kid just, oh. And I was like, okay, but I am going to go on the other side of the store now, which is what I did. Kids throw temper tantrums. Why? When the reality doesn't meet the expectation, the expectation doesn't meet the reality, right? The gap is temper tantrum. You know what adults do when we don't get what we want? Temper tantrum. We do the exact same thing. We just do it with a nice package on it. We do. Well, I'm not going to talk to that person anymore. Oh, look, look who's calling. I didn't get that message. I'm not going to do that. This is what people do. I'm not making this up, right? Oh, I'm just not going to talk to them. Do they know what they do? Well, you know, they're not going to be invited to the next party. Oh, unfriend, unfriend. This is what we do. We throw temper tantrums, but we do it with a little package on it, right? I'm not embellishing this. This is the truth. This is how we act. The point I'm trying to say is that whether you're a little kid or you're an adult, when expectations and reality don't make sense and they don't meet together, what happens is we get disappointed. 
The danger in this is spiritually. When the expectation we have of God doesn't match the reality that we think it should look like, we can become disappointed with God. There is an answer on how we can deal with this, though, and Scripture shows it to us, and it's in Psalm 34, verse 8 uh, through 10, and I want to show this with you, show this to you. Beginning in verse 8, it says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you, his godly people, for those who fear him will have all they need. Even strong young lions sometimes go hungry, but those who trust in the Lord will lack no good thing. Now, the expectation we need to look at and what the Bible's saying here and what God's saying through this word is in verse 10. Those, look at verse 10, the second half, those who trust in the Lord will lack no good thing. What is he saying here? Think about this. This is really, really incredible. It blows my mind. He's saying, if you choose to trust in God, in verse 9 it says, fear the Lord, but that just means honor God. Make your life about honoring him and revering him. It's not about being afraid. It's about honoring him. If you trust in him with all your heart, if you give your life to him, you will never lack good. Think about that. Your life will never lack good. Now, does that even make sense when we think about it through the filter of our lives? Because when we experience our own lives, there are great times and there are hard times, right? Scripture says it's all good. It doesn't make sense, right? Here's why it doesn't make sense sometimes. Because our definition of good is wrong. Because we associate good with our environment and our circumstances. And scripture asks us to redefine our definition of good. Good has nothing to do with our circumstances. Good has everything to do with God. So when he's saying, if you trust in the Lord, you will lack no good thing. What he's really saying is the best thing that you could ever have is to know God and to be in relationship with God. And when you are in relationship with him, you will never, ever, ever lack good. Good is never about what we have around us or our circumstances. It's not about what God does for us. It's about who he is and how well we can know him. And you can know God in the high heights of your life. On the mountaintops, you can know him. In fact, that's when most people talk about when they know him. Hey, I want to give praise to God. I want to say God is good. How many times do you hear people talk about that? I've seen it so many times. I've heard it and I've seen it, especially in social media. I just got the promotion that I was praying for. And what do people write? God is good. God is good. God is good. So-and-so just got after the, get out of the hospital. We were praying for him and they recovered. God is good. God is good. God is good. That wayward child that ran away from us. Hey, they're back home. God is good. God is good. You know what I don't see? I don't see the messages when people say, I was just diagnosed with stage four cancer. And the doctor says, I have 12 months to live. God is good. God is good. Nobody says it then. My child is struggling with an addiction and I can't seem to help them and I don't know what to do. God is good. God is good. Do you hear it then? I was waiting and I was hoping and I was praying for this promotion. And instead of getting promoted because our family really needs this right now, I was laid off. After 30 years working for the company, I was laid off. People don't say, God is good. It almost sounds like it's completely counterintuitive, doesn't it? 
But the truth of the matter is, God is good is the same response or should be the same response we give to whether things are on the mountaintops or whether things are coming in the valleys. You hear me? Because God is good is not conditional on our environment or our circumstances. He is always good. And the reason why he's good is because he made a way for us to know him. Because the number one priority for God is for you and I to know him in relationship. That's what the psalmist is saying here. That if you trust in the Lord, you will lack no good thing. Means it doesn't matter if you're on the mountaintop or it doesn't matter if you're in the valley. You can always know the creator of the universe. You can always know the author and the creator of life. You can always be at peace to know that he will never leave you. And he has always made a way to walk with you. That's what it means when we can say God is good. You with me? Hear what I'm saying? It's so important that we understand that because we define it through our self-centered, sinful, little human stuff from when we learned when we were kids. Good circumstances mean God is good. Bad things mean that maybe God isn't good. And that's not true. He is always good because the best thing that we can be in is in relationship with him. And this is how the Bible defines ultimate good. If you don't believe me, I want to ask you just a few moments to think about your definition of eternal life. How do you view eternal life this morning? If I asked you to write down your definition of eternal life, we'd get a bunch of different answers, but maybe we'd hear some things like, well, eternal life is about we never die because it's life and it's eternal. We never die. Maybe it's about being with God in heaven, that yes, we're in heaven. Maybe it's about being in paradise. There's no tears and there's no sorrow and and that's what it's going to mean, eternal life. It's going to be a wonderful place and everything's great. But you know what the Bible says? You know what Jesus says, actually? What Jesus said eternal life is? In John 17, 3, he said this. Eternal life is to know you, the only true God, and to know Jesus Christ, the one you sent. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not forever be separate from God, but now has the opportunity to know God for eternity. You hear me? That's what I'm saying. That's the definition of eternal life, that when you give your heart to Christ, you put your faith in Jesus, the work of Jesus on the cross, as his Lord and his, as your Lord, his as your Lord and Savior, you can forever know him beginning right now. You can forever know him, the creator of the universe, forever. Because he sent him so that you can know him. Knowing God is the ultimate good. That is the whole message of this book. God's pursuit for knowing you and me. His pursuit. We sing this song, Reckless Love. It's his pursuit for knowing you. His pursuit for knowing me. And the message we need to remember through all of it is whether we are high, high on the mountains or low, low in the valleys, it doesn't matter if we're up top, down low, or in the middle. What matters is that we remember throughout all of it, we can always know God. That's it. That's what it comes down to. And it means when we're up high, he gives us encouragement and courage and and, and he blesses us and there's, there's joy. And it means when we're in the valleys, he gives us joy and encouragement and strength. And he's the friend that sticks closer to the brother, the scripture says. It means you can get everything you need from him because relationship with him is the only thing that sustains you regardless of your circumstances. You hear me this morning? 
So important for us to know. And we live in such a consumer-based society where we associate good with environment and has nothing to do with that. It's about knowing God in relationship with him. Now, if you're a little skeptical about this, I want to just show you two examples, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament briefly, to show you that it is the theme that you see through Scripture. It's pretty powerful. And we're going to backtrack to the book of Genesis. And some of you may know the story of a guy named Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph was one of 12 brothers. And he was the second youngest brother. He was favored by his father over all the other brothers. Shame on his dad. Um, But that's what actually happened. And he favored him. He made this coat of many colors for him. Some of you heard that. Remember that that Broadway show, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat? Had nothing to do with it. I always thought that was like the Bible, and it wasn't. But but it was cool. You know, I never saw it, but I'm like, it has coats. It's got to be spiritual. Had nothing to do with the Bible, really. Um, But it borrowed stuff from Scripture. His dad favored him. Joseph had a dream. And in the dream, he said, all these 11 stalks were bowing down. And basically, he told his brothers, like, I had this dream, and all 11 of you are going to bow down to me, and I'm going to be over all you. Didn't go too well for his brothers. Brothers didn't like that. What did they do? They all conspired against him. They threw him in a well. They beat him up, threw him in a well. And then when these, these trade guys came through on their way to Egypt, they, he sold, they sold him into slavery. And he goes to Egypt. They take his coat, they tear it up, they put animal blood on it, and they lie to their dad and they say, Joseph was killed by a wild animal. And this is the story that we see in the book of Genesis. Joseph then gets the opportunity to serve under one of the leaders in the government. And he gets accused of having a relationship that was inappropriate with the governor's wife. And he gets thrown into jail. And, and, and he was innocent, but he was still thrown into jail. And Joseph continued to faithfully honor God and to serve God. And he had dreams, and God gave him the gift of interpretation, and he interpreted these dreams of a baker and a, and a, um, uh, a wine cupbearer. And um, he was still forgotten about, even though the dreams came true. And years went by, and years went by. He had another dream. Eventually, he interprets this dream that there's going to be a famine in the land for seven years, after seven years of prosperity. And he tells the Pharaoh about it, and the Pharaoh puts him in control over the entire land of Egypt number two in command under the Pharaoh, and he puts together a plan to save enough food in the first seven years so that he can feed everyone in the second seven, including his family from Israel. Joseph is unrecognizable. and They all come to Egypt because Egypt's the only place where there's food. But Joseph is unrecognizable by his brothers, but he recognizes them. And as the story goes on, they finally, you know, he, he, the jig is up and he knows who he is and they know who he is and he invites them to come live with them and, and he, you know, he, he weeps with them and forgives them and the, the father comes and this reunion is a wonderful reunion that happens. And then years later, you see in the story of Genesis, their father dies. His father's gone and he passes away. And it's interesting that at that time in Genesis chapter 50, it's after their father dies that the brothers all come together and say, now that dad is gone, what if Joseph decides to seek revenge on us? So they made up this story to say, Joseph, before dad died, he said, please forgive your brothers for what they did to you. And this is Joseph's response in verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. And let's just stop there for a second. God intended it for good. Many times people have heard this scripture before, and I've heard people quote it over the years. You intended to harm me. God intended it for good. It's a powerful passage because it talks about, it, it talks about the, the goodness that God can redeem any situation. But look at the rest of it. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, what Joseph is doing is he's making a comparison. He's saying all of the abuse, all the, the offense, 
all of the difficulty that I've gone through over the years, you intended to, to, to be used for my evil, to harm me. God intended it for good, but this is the definition of good, for the saving of many lives. Now, a lot of theologians will tell you as they look at this story that Joseph is a prefigure of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ, because their lives parallel in many ways. Both were favored by their father. Both were rejected by their brothers. Both were faithful and through suffering were raised to the highest place in the land. Why? To save the people. It was a foreshadowing of what Jesus was going to do as the Messiah. But think about what this means. The saving of many lives is the priority. And what does it mean to be saved? It doesn't mean to go to heaven. Remember, eternal life is what? To know God. And what Joseph is saying here is all the difficult things that I've experienced aren't worth camping on and thinking about because the end goal is for us to know God. And all of these people have the opportunity to know God. See how this works? Taking all the circumstances away and just focusing on what is the point. It's to know God. And that's the Old Testament example. In the New Testament, we can fast forward to the book of Philippians and look at the Apostle Paul, who was ahead above everybody else. And I mean educationally. Super, super wise, very intelligent, a Pharisee above Pharisees, one of the greatest Jewish leaders during that time, and was so zealous for the law of the Old Testament and the things of God that he persecuted and he went after and gave witness and approved of the death of Christians. Highly, highly, highly credentialed in that time as a Jewish leader. Then he meets Jesus. And his whole life turns and he goes from a man that persecuted Christians to a man who was one, who preached the gospel to save others, not to proclaim death on them. And he says this about everything he's accumulated in his life. In verse 7, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. He took all of the mountaintop experience, all the training, all of the good circumstances of his life, and he said, none of it is worth anything if I can't know God. Are you with me? That's what he's saying. It's the exchange to say circumstances don't determine the definition of good. It's how much we can know God. And God is in the business of taking every great experience that we have and drawing us closer to him. He's in the business of taking every hard situation we have and drawing us closer to him. He'll take anything that you come across and he will work it together for the good of those who love him, the Bible says in Romans 8, 28, according to his purpose. But what is the good? To know God. He'll take every circumstance and help you become more aware and to build a deeper relationship with him. Think about the reality of this in our life today and the struggles that we go through. Thinking about over the last five or six weeks, reflecting upon the the journey many of you are aware of, of what Zach Oberholzer is going through in the hospital right now and his bone marrow transplant. How from the time he was a little boy, his body couldn't make neutrophils and his immune system was compromised. And people have prayed for him for year after year after year, praying and fasting and believing that God is going to do something and having to get injections every night over the course of 18 years. And we've waited and we've prayed and we've asked and we say, God, What's the deal? 
And yet he still goes into the hospital for the bone marrow transplant because that's the next step that they're looking at in prayer and seeking God for years, asking for wisdom through the process. And how easy would it be for anyone on the outside or on the inside to look at that circumstance and say, I don't understand God. It's disappointing. My expectation and the reality are not the same. Clearly, you don't care. It's easy for people to look at that if they're not looking at it from the right way. And yet you have a conversation with their family while they're in the hospital and as they're walking through this and they'll tell you, you know, the nurses tell us when they walk into the room that they sense something in this room that's different than every other room that they walk into in the hospital. True. They'll tell you the stories of the women and the families that they can gather with and have a prayer meeting with on a weekly basis to encourage each other as they're walking through difficult things together. True. They'll tell you of the faithfulness of God to show his love for them and others as people continue to reach out to love and support them. And through that support, they're able to support other people that are in the hospital that have no support network. Can I ask you, and as hard as it is to even imagine this, if him going through this process allows someone else to know God, is it worth it? Think about it. Well, it was easy for us to stay outside of it because we're not the one in the bed. Would it be worth it if the person that came to know Christ was your family member? Would it be worth it if the person that came to know Christ was your father, your mother, your sibling, your child? Would it be worth it if that experience that he has had to walk through, as painful as that experience has been over the last many years, if that opportunity that was presented there gave someone else the opportunity to know Jesus? Would it be worth it? Would it be worth it if you were in the bed and maybe none of that stuff happened, but through the process, you got to know God better? You see, none of us are sitting in that hospital bed this morning, but in some ways, many of us are walking with an illness that needs to be treated. Maybe God wants that struggle that you have or that I have to be the thing that draws us close to him, not pushes us away. Does it make sense? Maybe. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for God's miraculous healing. It doesn't mean we shouldn't believe God for supernatural. None of that stuff is disqualified. What it means is that when things are awesome, God is good. When things are horrible, it means God is good. It means the exact same thing regardless of which side of the spectrum we're looking from it. And that's what we need to be reminded of this morning. That God is always good, regardless of the circumstances. If our worship team could come up as we get ready to close, and I'm going to invite any one of our water baptism people, if you would get up and go to the back, you can get ready for our water baptism in just a few moments. I'm going to share a story as I get ready to close this morning that I think really draws the point home for us this morning to understand just how good it is to know God. Some of you may have heard the story of Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a missionary in the 1950s. Jim Elliott was a man who felt called to share Christ's teaching to the Waodani tribe in Ecuador. This was in the mid-1950s. And at the time, the Waodani tribe were one of the most violent known people groups on the earth. They practiced things like homicide, and they fiercely defended their territory against any outsiders. And yet, Jim Elliott and four other missionary men decided to give their lives to reaching those people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Elliot and his missionary friends initiated contact with the tribe by being taught some of their language. First, they dropped gifts from an airplane, and later they established a camp not too far away from the settlement. And it was in January of 1956 that the five men were killed by members of the tribe as they approached them in person for the first time with the hopes of ever sharing the gospel to them. The first time they'd have an opportunity to witness to these people that never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, their lives ended. They died by spear and all five of them lost their lives. The story generated worldwide news coverage and Christians all around the world heard the story, many of whom have read Jim's journal to this day, where in his journal, he quotes one of the most famous quotes that many of us have heard. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which, that which he cannot lose. He has also been read by thousand believers. It's been read by thousands of believers all around the world. So I share that story with you because the story doesn't end there. You see, about 16 years ago, my wife and I had an opportunity to go to a concert. We went to a Stephen Curtis Chapman concert. And he was on tour at that point doing what they called the Declaration Tour. It was one of his albums in 2002. And during this concert, he played a song called God Follower. And it was about the trail being changed where we follow our way to us following God's way. And at the end of the story, he brings up a man or he brought up a man named Steve Saint. Steve Saint was the son of Nate Saint. And Nate was one of the five missionaries who died at the hands of the tribe members. So he brings this man up on the stage 16 years ago. And Steve begins to tell the story of his dad. And he tells a story of the being compelled to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that his dad lost his life at the hands of these people at the tribe. And then Steve introduces a man named Minkai. And Minkai comes on the stage, and he's a native of the Wadani tribe, and he's the man who killed his father. You see, what they didn't tell us at that point was that two years after the five were killed, two years after the five were killed, Elizabeth Elliot and a sister of one of the other missionaries were introduced to the Wadani tribe. And they were invited to live amongst the tribe. And by them living in the tribe, many across the tribe gave their hearts to Jesus. So now, standing on the stage, as a boy who was now a full-grown man, who never had the opportunity to know his dad. He never knew him. He never had a relationship with him. He didn't see his dad while he was growing up. His dad didn't experience, he couldn't teach his son how to become a man. He stands on the stage next to a man who took his father's life. And he talks to him. And he talks to the audience about this man. And he talks about the salvation that came to this tribe and to this man. And how this entire life has been changed. And the tribe was changed because they went to share the gospel. And probably one of the most beautiful parts about the whole story, which it still stirs me when I think about it. He stood there with his hand around the man and he referred to him as grandfather because he became his adoptive grandfather and I have a picture of that. That's Steve Saint and Minkai telling the story 16 years ago and the transforming power that came through Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this morning, 
Is it worth the cost? Do you think that boy, when he was little, could have been angry at God for losing his dad? Do you think he probably was? I bet you he was at times. Do you think he was disappointed with God for things not working out the way that they would have if he was in control? Do you think he would have wanted to grow up and actually have a relationship with his dad? Do you think his dad would have wanted to see his boy grow up? Yeah. But he wasn't able to. And he could be disappointed with God. And it's okay to be upset. And it's okay to be sad sometimes. Don't get me wrong. It's okay to be human and to feel the pain. But we need to be able to look past the circumstance and ask, was it worth it? For those five men to go into a country or to a tribe, to give themselves so that all of those people could know God. Because we're talking about a sliver of our life today. And now they'll be with God and each other for eternity. You with me? It is so powerful. Yes, it can be difficult when we feel like we're being disappointed by God. But we need to remember the heart of God above all things is to recognize that in the good things, God is good. In the upbeat mountaintop experiences, God is good. But can I also tell you, in the hardship and the tragedies of life, God is good, amen. He is good because he works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Would you take a moment and stand as we bow our heads this morning? We're gonna sing this song, Good, Good Father, and I'm just gonna ask you, as we prepare for our water baptism, to take a few moments and just reflect on your relationship today with God. If you have one, just take a moment and bow your head and just ask yourself, are you disappointed with God right now? Maybe there's a situation or a circumstance you're wrestling with and you're saying, I know I'm disappointed with you right now, Lord. God, I'm disappointed because my my reality doesn't look like the expectation and I'm upset or I'm angry. Just take a few moments confess that to him. He knows. Trust him. Trust him that he can use it to draw others to him and he can use it to draw you closer to him as well. For he's just not a father. He's not just a good father. He is a good, good father. Lord, speak to us today as we worship.